Guys, you can be seated. If you brought your Bibles today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17 and then also in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, those two passages will be the bulk of where we, we spend our time. We took off the last two weeks around Christmas time and uh, uh, from this series that we were doing, and so we're back in that today, and we're going to, uh, to kind of pick up where we left off. If you remember last time, we, we left with Paul and Silas going into a town called Philippi. Um, when they were in, in this town called Philippi, they, uh, they were preaching. They met a lady named Lydia. She came to know the Lord. Uh, and then they met this lady who was demon-possessed. Uh, she was a fortune teller. They cast out the demon from her, and her owners uh, got very angry that she would no longer make money for them. And so they had Paul and Silas arrested. They went into to, uh, to prison. They were guarded. They were in, in chains and, and spent the night there. And it says that, that they praised the Lord throughout the night. An earthquake came. The gates opened. The doors of the prison opened. And... Uh, when the guard realized what had happened, the guard drew his sword and was going to kill himself because in Roman culture, when a prisoner escaped, the, the guards were put to death. And so Paul hollered out and told the man, don't kill yourself, we're all still here. Uh, we said last, last time that just because a door opens doesn't always mean that we're meant to walk through it at that moment. Uh, there's, just because a, a door is open doesn't mean that that's really where God wants us to, to go at that moment. So Paul hung around. He led that Philippian jailer and his, his family to the Lord. Uh, they baptized him there that night. Um, and then um, the, uh, the magistrates of that town said, look, you can go. These guys just turn them loose, but you guys get out of town. And so they were, they were up in the area of, of Philippi, and uh, we've crossed over in from, uh, from Asia into Europe, and Philippi is right here is where they were. Uh, after they left Philippi, they're going to travel across through to this Thessalonica. So... They're in the same region, but here's Thessalonica. It's a coastal uh, city, and that's where we're going to pick up today as they make their way down into Thessalonica. They were mistreated in Philippi. They were sent away, and now they've traveled this 100 miles um, from Philippi over to uh, Thessalonica. That 100-mile trip would have taken them anywhere from 7 to 10 days, experts say. Uh, it would be time for their body to kind of heal from the beating that they had received. They were... Uh, they were beaten and they were bloody. Um, we know that after they uh, led that Philippian jailer to the Lord that he kind of cleaned up their wounds a little bit. And, uh, and then they were sent on their way. So this, this seven to ten day trip would be enough time for the, the scabs to form and, the, and the, the wounds to begin the process of healing. But you've got to realize that that beating is still fresh in their mind as they go into Thessalonica. They're, they're making their way into now another town, not knowing if they're going to be received well-treated or, or mistreated. They don't know what's ahead. Paul never knew what was next. But, but if you picked up anything now from our study of, of Paul's life, is that Paul doesn't stay anywhere very long. It's not long before the gospel begins to cut, people begin to get angry, and mobs begin to form, and either he's beaten or he's stoned or he's run out of town on a rail. And so Paul's going to go in Thessalonica, and he's going to, to begin to serve there. So in Acts chapter 17, we kind of pick up this, um, this story of how he arrives in town. It says, Now when they, it's Paul and Silas and Timothy's with them, um, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, in a couple of towns they just visited, there, there was no synagogue of the Jews. And we said that anytime in, in Jewish culture, anytime there was 10 Jewish males that lived in the same town that wanted to worship, they would form a synagogue. So when you see the presence of a synagogue, that means there was at least a small Jewish population that was there. We're not told how big 
this group of Jews was, but there was enough that they could form a synagogue together. And so they go to this city, Thessalonica. It's got some kind of a Jewish population because there's a synagogue that's there. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scripture. So this gives us kind of a time frame about how long that Paul's going to be in Thessalonica. Anywhere from three weeks to a month Paul's going to spend in Thessalonica before he's going to get run out of town again. Now he goes into the synagogue. It was always Paul's custom when there was a Jewish synagogue in the town that he was visiting that he would start with the Jews. He would try to reason with the Jews. He would try to show the Jews how the, the, the pieces of the Old Testament fit together. He would share the gospel with them about how Jesus had come to be the Savior and the Messiah. And he always started with the Jews. And when the Jews rejected the gospel, then he would go out and share with the Gentiles. And so here he is again, according to his custom, he is going first and foremost to the synagogue. So he goes into the synagogue on three consecutive Sabbath days, and he reasons with them from the scriptures. Now, sometimes we read the word scripture and we think, oh, from the whole Bible. But remember, the, the New Testament's yet to be written, okay? So he's using the Jewish scriptures, he's using the, the Old Testament, and he is reasoning with them. And when I think about what Paul's trying to do here, I picture working a puzzle, okay? And, and I don't know if you've ever done this, and I've never done this, and I don't want to advise it, but if you flipped all the pieces of the puzzle upside down, face down, and you were trying to work a piece of the puzzle and put that puzzle together, that'd be almost impossible to do if you don't have the picture to, to look at. But in so many ways, that's what the Jews were trying to do. They were looking at Old Testament Scripture, and they couldn't figure out how all these pieces of the Messiah were supposed to fit together. And it's almost as if Paul comes into their town and begins to take those puzzle pieces and flip them over and say, guys, let me show you the picture. That, let me show you what this Old Testament has really all been about. You're trying to work the puzzle, but you've got the pieces upside down. You can't see how the pictures fit together. And so it's like Paul begins one by one to flip over the puzzle pieces and to say, now let me show you how, how, how this in the Old Testament fits together with this in the Old Testament and how all these things come forward and paint a picture of who the Messiah is supposed to be. So that's really Paul's technique, is to go into the Jewish synagogues to take their scriptures, which is our Old Testament, and to say, let me turn over the pieces and let me show you how all this stuff begins to fit together. Have you ever had one of those, those moments where all of a sudden pieces of the puzzle just start to go together? You, you've read the Bible through many different times maybe, and, and, and then something happens this time you're reading it, and all of a sudden you go, oh, man, I've never seen that before. I didn't know that there was a thread that ran all the way from the Garden of Eden all the way through to the end of Revelation. I didn't know that, that God was weaving this masterpiece and putting all these pieces together. It's, it's almost as if we've got these different stories of the Old Testament, but we don't realize how they all fit together because they're, they're upside down. And, and, and God, through the Holy Spirit, sometimes just flips the pieces over and shows you how it all begins to fit together. That's what Paul's doing in the Jewish synagogues. He's, he's not introducing new scripture He's just showing them how the scriptures fit together. So he, he reasons with them from the scriptures in verse 2. Verse 3 says he, he's explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ, the Messiah, to suffer, to rise from the dead. And then he was saying to them, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, he is the Christ. The word Christ is the word the Jews would use to, to, to refer to their Messiah. So what Jesus is saying is, let me, let me, or what Paul is saying is, 
Let me flip some pieces over. Let me show you how these pieces go together. And all these promises in the Old Testament that have been made by the prophets and, 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 and all these different pieces are, are painting a picture. And that picture is showing you Jesus. Jesus, the one that the Jews crucified, the one that they put on a cross, the one that we laid in the tomb, the one that God resurrected from the dead. Jesus is, is the portrait that the Old Testament has been painting. And he's trying to show them how that, 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 that picture comes together. And so he's not introducing new stuff to them. He's just showing them how that all those pieces that, that they had read and studied and memorized, how they all began to fit together and all pointed toward Jesus Christ. One of the things I love about what we're doing in, in children's church here is that we are taking a holistic gospel approach. Instead of just teaching our kids, hey, there's a story about a guy named Noah who built an ark and he escaped the flood. It's great. Story. Close it. Shut that book. Let's move on to another story. Here's Abraham and his wife, Sarah. We're taking all these pieces of the Old Testament and children's church and we're saying, let me show you how it began in the garden and how God did this and this piece fits this piece and this piece. And all of a sudden, our children are getting this timeline of how that God's been working from the very beginning to bring forth the Messiah. So it's not just stories that are self-contained, but it's this gospel thread that runs all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament. And, and that's what Paul's doing here is he's, he's laying that out for the, for the Jews in the synagogue. And he's, he's explaining and proving that, that Jesus was the one that the prophets had predicted. He was the ones that, that had been promised from the old. And, and, and that instead of him coming and ruling and reigning as this, as this, this, um, this king on earth, he is going to be the king of all eternity. But it was necessary for him to die. Now, if you're a Jew and you're hearing this, you're thinking, wait a minute, that's not the Messiah that I envisioned. That's not what I thought. But Paul says it was necessary for Jesus to die. Then the question would be, why was it necessary that Jesus die? That's where Paul introduces the concept of sin and the need for grace and the need for forgiveness. That salvation is not by our works. It's not even by keeping that mosaic law that the Jews tried to keep. It's not by anything that we do in our human effort. It's all what Christ did on the cross. And that's where it begins to become offensive to the Jews. Okay? They can look at this picture and see the puzzle coming together. But when he puts the cross in the picture, the, the New Testament says the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. Here's why it's a stumbling block. Because the cross says... I'm a sinner, and I'm lost, and there's only one way for me to be saved. That's the message of the cross, is that Jesus had to die, or we would be eternally lost. And so he's explaining this, and I think this is where the rub comes in. When he gets to this part, and he says it's necessary that Jesus had to die, and he had to suffer. It was necessary that God had to raise him from the dead. Why is that necessary, Paul? Because we're sinners, and we fall short of the glory of God. And no man can come to the Father except through Christ. And, and all those passages now that Jesus taught begin to come into play. And this is where the Jews begin to get very uncomfortable. He says this Jesus is the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for. The one our forefathers told us about. And it says in verse 4, some of them were persuaded. And they joined Paul and Silas, as did a, a great many uh, of the devout Greeks 
and not a few of the leading women, the aristocratic women. So he's saying there was, there were some of the Jews, there was a great many of the Gentiles, and, and even a few of these upper-class ladies that were in their society. They were there, and, and several of them began to, uh, to come around and to embrace this gospel. Now, I want you to realize that these Jews that are in this synagogue, guys, they're, they're not in an in environment any longer. They've left the Bible Belt of Jerusalem, okay? And they've moved to Europe. They are far from home, but they're still dedicated to their Jewish roots. They're dedicated to the faith of their forefathers. They are serious about keeping us alive. They haven't just left Jerusalem gone to a whole other continent and said, you know what, we're just going to do our own thing now. Nobody's watching. (laughs) Nobody will know. We're just going to kind of live our life out. We're going to blend in with the culture and just be like everybody else. These guys are serious about their faith. These Jews are are hardcore to go to a whole other continent and to take their faith with them. They're, They're devoted, but they're still lost. Remember Lydia? She, she gathered, she prayed, she worshipped, she was still lost. These Jews gathered and they prayed and they worshipped and they kept the Mosaic law and they did all these rituals that their forefathers had done because they were radical about their Jewish faith. And now somebody's coming in saying that there's more to the story than what they've been given, that, they're, that there's this Messiah that they need to yield themselves to and need to call upon. They, they were trusting in their own ability and their own rituals, their own Mosaic law to bring them salvation. They're doing what many people, thousands of people do across this world every single Sunday to go to church and to think I'm going to, it's a new year, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to be religious and I'm going to raise the kids in church and I'm going to get a fresh start. This is a new year, we're going to do that. But do you know you can go to church every day for the rest of your life and still not be a believer? Still not be saved and still die and go to hell? That that church doesn't fix that? And that's what Paul's addressing as he speaks to these Jewish people and say, listen, I understand the rituals. I understand all the things that you do. I did that myself. But Jesus came and, and he died. And he did so because he had to because we couldn't get to heaven apart from that. And this gospel begins to become offensive to the Jews. But, but, but God's Spirit has come and God's Spirit's doing this, this, this work and, and many believe and, and they begin to, to follow Paul. And, and this gospel message, though, begins to clash with the Jews that are in that synagogue, that, that are hardcore, that do not want to turn away from that. It, it clashed with their strongly held beliefs. So at first they're kind of polite, the first week or two. By the third week, they're getting a little riled up, and they're going, man, this guy's just, he's relentless. He won't let go of this thing called the gospel. He talks about the need for the Savior, and, and those that believed uh, began to, to meet with Paul. Paul was staying in a friend's house named Jason that we're going to learn about here in just a minute. But Jason was a, a believer, a Jewish believer, who opened up his home to anybody and everybody who wanted to come and listen to Paul during the week. So on the Sabbath, they would go into the, into the synagogue and they would teach. And then the rest of the week, Paul became a tent maker, began to, to earn money, to pay his way, to buy his food, to, to, to take care of himself so that he wouldn't be a, a bother to anybody else. But he would spend time in the evenings, or maybe even time as he's working, explaining the gospel to those who would gather there at Jason's house. 
And so they're all there and they're gathering and, the, and this church is birthed and it's, it's really amazing how quick in such a short time that the gospel takes root and in these three to four short weeks, the gospel takes root and a church is birthed here in Thessalonica. First Thessalonians kind of fills in some of the details of, of how a church could be birthed and how it could be born so quickly. So I want you to, if you've got your Bibles, to look with me in First Thessalonians, a couple key passages that tell us how a church could be started so quickly and how it could be sustained. Because Paul's going to be driven out of town in, in just less than a month. And this church is going to thrive and it's going to impact every area around it. So how does a church get started and become so strong so fast? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul talks about his time in Philippi and, and, and what he suffered there and how that impacted what he was going to do here in Thessalonica. He says, for, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, even though that happened, we came to you with boldness in our heart, boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So Paul, while he steps into Thessalonica, I imagine he's a little gun shy. You know, you, you go into town often enough and you share in different towns and, and everywhere you go, when you're bold and you turn loose the gospel, there's always conflict. There's always people that are going to push back. And now we're going to a new town. Paul and, and Silas don't know what awaits them. But he says, you know what? I was mistreated in Philippi and yet we didn't hold back. We had boldness in our God. And we declared to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. How did Paul preach? Did he hold back? Did he say, you know what, man, last time I preached boldly, it cost me. I'm going I'm to be a little more timid. I'm going to be a little more cautious. I'm going to hedge my bets. I'm going to, to, to hold back. And you know what we'll do? We'll just get to know these people for a year or two, and then we're going to open up the door, and we're going to really share with them the full gospel. Not at all. Paul comes in and the gospel, listen, locations changed for Paul, but the gospel never did. Paul would go from one town to another town to another town to another town, but the message never changed. He didn't water it down. He didn't use flattery speech. He, he came in there and he says, the gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Paul says, I didn't hold back anything. How does a church get grounded? It's when the gospel's preached and, and we don't hold back. We don't water it down. We don't candy coat it. We don't sugarcoat it. We just present the gospel and trust that God's spirit will use that in a powerful way. So he says, even in the midst of great suffering, there was boldness to declare the gospel, even in the midst of the conflict that that was going to create, even in that Jewish synagogue. So it comes with great power, with full conviction. Chapter 2, verse 13 he says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. What's he saying? When they heard Paul speak, they recognized that what Paul was saying was not the words of men, but it was the word of God. There's a big difference. When you go to church, if you think, well, I'm just going to listen to, what, to the preacher's opinion. And if that's all we ever give you is just our opinion, then guess what? You can take that or leave that, right? Well, he thinks this way, but I look at it this way. He belongs to this party, but I belong to that party. He sees life this way, and I see life that way, and I can take it or I can leave it. 
But when, when the preacher preaches the word of God, all of a sudden you've got to go, you know what, I, I, I'm not arguing with him, I've got to argue with God. And that's a whole different ballgame. I, I can take or leave God's word, but I take or leave God's word knowing that this is the word of God. This is what God says. And so Paul presented the word of God, not his opinion. He presented the word of God. He showed them how all those pieces began to fit together. And they received it not as Paul's opinion, but as the word of God. And that gave them confidence and it gave them boldness. It gave them something to build their church upon. And this church is going to take root and this church is going to spring up and it's going to grow because it's built upon the word of God, not just the opinions of man. And so they accepted the word as, as it's coming straight from God. In, in, in chapter 2, verses 4 through 12, he says this, he says, but, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please men. So it's Paul saying, my, my speech was not to make you happy, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. In other words, it's not for what I'm going to get out of this, Paul says. God's my witness. Nor do we seek the glory from people. In other words, Paul's saying, I, I didn't come to make you happy. I didn't come to please you. I didn't come to, to say what your itching ears would want to hear. I gave you the gospel. I didn't seek glory from you. I didn't want you to think, well, man, Paul is so gifted. Paul is so powerful. Paul is all that. Paul said, I didn't do this for my glory. Whether it came from you or it came from others, that wasn't it. He says, we could have made some demands. In other words, Paul could have come down and said, listen, you, you owe me. You, I'm the preacher and you need to support me. And I, Paul could have made all kinds of demands upon them. He says, we didn't do that. But we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. You see this picture of how Paul says he related to the people? He wasn't mean, he wasn't harsh. He didn't hold back the truth, but he spoke the truth in love. He says, I was gentle like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectious, uh, affectionately desirous of you, there's that deep, deep love. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become, become very dear to us. Listen, listen to the tender words. The, these guys were only together for less than a month. And Paul says, when we came to town, we didn't flatter. We didn't draw attention to ourselves. In fact, we, we took care of our own business. We didn't ask you for money and ask you to support us. I didn't come to town with another stump speech. We came to town. We presented the gospel to you. We did it tenderly. And he uses that picture of a mother nursing her child. How tender that is. That, that connection that is, that is built and established. He said, we became affectionately desirous of you. In other words, we had a deep, deep love for you. And he says this, he says, we didn't just give you a sermon. We didn't just share with you this gospel. But we shared with you ourselves. I remember 30 years ago when I was in seminary, there were professors on campus that would tell you in these practical classes about how to lead a church, don't ever get close to the people in your church. <laughs> I remember sitting in that class going, what? If you get close to the people, they're going to hurt you. You get close to the people, they're going to disappoint you. Keep a, keep a good distance between you and the people. 
That's just the opposite of what Paul says. He said, I didn't just give you a sermon. I gave you myself. I, 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 I fell in love with you and you fell in love with me. And, and our hearts were knit together in a way that only the Holy Spirit can do. There was no distance between us. This wasn't just about a preacher coming to town, preaching a great message, collecting a big offering, and moving on to the next town. Paul says, I came there, and I poured myself into you, and you poured yourself into me, and we developed a deep, deep relationship. You see how he's filling in some of the gaps that Acts just kind of moves on through the story? There was, this, there was some kind of a, of a Holy Spirit thing going on that knit them together quickly. Paul's going to say later in 1 Thessalonians that, that we were ripped apart from you. This, this, this picture of, of, of almost like a mother nursing her child and the child being stripped away and that mother's heart being broken as the child's carried away. It's that, it's that picture where Paul says we were ripped away from you, not, not in our hearts, but in, in, in person. It's driven out of town and it broke my heart, Paul says. There was this deep, deep connection. And guys, that's what we, what we have here at Crossroads is this deep connection where we are doing life together, where we are loving one another, where, where we are there. So what we get here in this picture is this, that Paul's not just standing before great big crowds preaching the gospel and then running off and hiding somewhere during the week. But Paul is involved in their lives. He's involved in their families. They're coming to Jason's house and they're hanging out and they're sharing meals and they're, they're discussing the gospel. And Paul is, is putting more pieces together for these people. And he is, he is rapidly discipling them as he pours himself into them. They're doing life together. That's the model that we use here with our, with our gospel communities. Not just, not just saying, let's gather on Sunday and hear a, another message. But let's give ourselves to each other. Let's pour ourselves into one another. And I think that's the model for pastors, but it's also the model for all of us to be able to pour our lives into each other. And so he says we speak it. It wasn't flattery. It wasn't greed. It was not for ourselves. It's not just the gospel, but it was ourselves. Verse 8, he says, we have this deep, deep love for you. This, we were affectionately desirous of you. And so he moves through this picture of this mother nursing her child he says in verse 10 or verse 9 i'm sorry he says for you remember brothers our labor and our toil we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you now this is the first time that paul refers to this this tent making that he did we know paul was a tent maker by by trade uh he began to supplement his work this is one of the first times on, on his on his journeys that we see paul talking about him actually working and, and doing physical work uh you say well robbie had a first missionary journey for two years how did he support himself then it's a great question and we're not we're not 100 percent sure but scholars tend to think that barnabas was a very wealthy man remember back in acts early on in acts that, that barnabas had sold a piece of land and given that land to the church they believe that barnabas had acquired great wealth and that probably barnabas as he traveled with paul on that first missionary journey kind of bankrolled that that trip that that barnabas use his own money, that they didn't, re they didn't take an offering from the churches, they didn't gather money, but that Barnabas helped to underwrite that. Well, now Paul and Barnabas have gone separate ways, and, and, and Paul's on his own, and Paul is saying, look, I don't want to be greedy, and I don't want to ask people for money. I don't want to say, hey, guys, let me share with you the gospel, and by the way, can we take an offering? I want to just lay it out there, and I want to say, hey, here's, here's the gospel, and I want you to receive it. And these churches would later support Paul, and they would later help Paul, but Paul worked night and day, in their midst and uh and he, he didn't want to be a burden to any of them while he's proclaiming the gospel 
And he says in verse 10, you are witnesses and God also of how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. And then he switches images again, verse 11. For you know how like a father, so while ago it was like a mother nursing their children, how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, we encouraged you, and we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and to his own glory. So now he changes images from this mother who was nursing to a father who is exhorting, uh, which is mean to call them to something greater than, than where they were, to encourage them and, and kind of strengthen them. You can do this, and, and with the Holy Spirit's help and his power, you can accomplish this. And, and then charging them. He, he talks in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians how he, he encouraged them and charged them to turn away from their idols. The, the, the town of Thessalonica was loaded with idols. It was also a very sexually promiscuous area where anything went. Men got points for stealing their best friend's wife. This was a town where, where anything went. And just because people turned to Jesus didn't mean all those desires went away immediately. And so he's going to exhort them and encourage them to turn away from their idols. And, and when you think about their idols, the idols are, are the things that we look to when we ought to be looking to God. We look to them for our identity. And so we make idols out of our stuff. Our cars, our houses, our toys, our things that we have. We, we make idols out of things that, that we look to for our identity when we ought to be looking to Christ. They're, they're things that we look to for our value and say, I'm valuable because I have or because I possess or because I know. And we make idols out of these things. We make idols when we believe that something other than God is our supplier and our source of joy and happiness and satisfaction and pleasure. So these idols, he says, you've got to turn away from those idols. So he exhorted, he encouraged, and he charged them to do that. He also prepared them and warned them about the persecution that would come. Can you imagine Paul talking to you about persecution and you going, ah, I don't believe you, Paul. I mean, all Paul would have to do is start undoing it and show you his back. And all the literally, literally thousands of scars across his back from the beatings that he had taken so he could share the gospel. That's the most powerful sermon illustration I could ever think of. Guys, listen, you, you want to live a godly life? Well, let, me, let me show you what that's going to bring you. And it's not Joel Osteen. It's scars and scabs and those scabs that are still on that back from 10 days previous and 20 days previous. You want to walk with God. You, you want to follow this Messiah. This is what it's going to cost you. And he warns them of the persecution. And that persecution came quickly for this, this church in Thessalonica. It came quickly. But they were prepared because in a month's time, Paul had intensely discipled these guys to be able to be prepared for what, what was coming their way. In, in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, he says, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Now listen to this. This is interesting. He's saying what you're going through and what you're going to encounter here is going to be the same thing that the Jews back in Jerusalem encountered when they turned to Jesus. Here's what happened. When, when Jews who were in the synagogues turned to Jesus, they were persecuted by their fellow Jews. And he says, and when you turn from the synagogue to Jesus, guess who's going to be the persecutor? 
your own people. Look what he says here. He says, he says, for you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same thing from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. The Jews, in verse 15, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved. He's saying, let me, let me tell you, I've, I've got years of experience here. I know this. When you turn to Jesus, you're going to be ostracized by your own people. You see, when Paul brought the gospel into this church, guys, he brought the gospel into this town, the believers were united like never before in a quick, quick way by the Holy Spirit. But they were ostracized by their family, by their church. And so you see a, a church that's forming and that's united, but you see a town now that's fractured. And you see the synagogue where people are pulling out and, 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 and the gospel does that. It, 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 it unites, but the gospel also divides. Jesus warned us of that. He says, sometimes the greatest enemy you're going to face are going to be those in your own household. When you turn to faith and they don't. And that'll be your biggest, your biggest problem. Not the outsiders, but the insiders. And he's saying that's what's happening to you guys as well. So Paul was this man on mission. And he wasn't wasting any opportunity at all. He wanted to take advantage of every opportunity that God gave him. And so we go back to Acts chapter 17 real quick. We, we say, man, it's a good thing that Paul took advantage. He didn't wait. He didn't delay. He says, you know what? You want to know Jesus? Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you what to expect. And it's a good thing because Paul didn't last very long in this town. Look what happens in, in verse 5. It says, but the Jews were jealous. Have you heard that before? How many times in Paul's journeys did the Jews get jealous? The Jews were jealous, and they took some of the wicked men of the rabble. That's a term we don't hear much anymore. You ever heard of a rabble rouser? You know what the rabble is? It's the, the low-life, unorganized thugs. That's a good dictionary definition. So look what happens is the, the Jews get jealous, and they take some of the wicked men of the rabble, the low-life, and they formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, where Paul was staying, Seeking to bring them out to the crowd. In other words, they're ready to stone Paul. They're ready to kill Paul in the streets. But when they get there, they can't find Paul. It says that when they couldn't find him, then they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason's received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another King Jesus. That is one of the most hypocritical statements that the Jews could have made. Who are the Jews supposed to be worshiping? God. And isn't it the Jews that get accused of saying that there's some other God other than Caesar? And so what did the Jews do for Paul? We, we, can't, we can't debate him. We can't conquer him. We can't overpower his arguments. We can't keep people from turning to Jesus. So we'll just say to the authorities, to the Roman authorities, to, to those in charge, these guys are promoting a different king other than Caesar. Now, now, one of two things. Either they're completely hypocritical or they're just honest and they've lost their love for God completely. But they can't be in love for God with Him as their supreme authority and, and in a true way say these guys 
or promoting something other than Caesar. They should have been promoting something other than Caesar, but that shows you how dead their hearts have become by becoming so legalistic in their rule-keeping that they missed their Messiah and they even missed this relationship that they were supposed to have with God. We, we, we get a little bit of a, a, a glimpse of what Paul and them were doing by the, the accusations made against them. Paul and them have been turning the world upside down. Everywhere Paul went, people were getting saved and churches were being formed and this Christianity was taking root and sweeping across these continents. They've turned the world upside down and now they've come here to do the same thing. And you know what makes it worse? One of our own, Jason, he received him. He's embraced this stuff. And to get the authorities mad, he says they're acting against the decrees of Caesar and they're saying that there's another king. Their allegiance doesn't belong to Caesar. It belongs to this guy named Jesus. Paul's preaching. Was that an accurate statement? Pretty much. Paul wasn't telling them to ditch Caesar. He's just saying Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is it. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security, they made Jason and his buddies post bond to get out of, out of jail, out of trouble. Then they let him go. And Jason had to post bond, and, and basically I'm sure there were some stipulations on that. If you go back to talking about this Jesus, or if Paul doesn't leave town soon, we're going to keep your money, you're going to forfeit all this, this bond that you put up. It'll all be gone. But they turn him loose and let him go. And we see the rest of the story that Paul's going to move on to another town. And, and this church, though, is going to be left behind. And it's going to grow and it's going to be strengthened. And it's going to take off in a way that, that, that only the Holy Spirit could, could take credit for. So they form this mob. They attack Jason. And um, they trump up some charges against those guys. So real quick, what are some lessons that we can learn, we can take, some practical stuff that we could take from this that would help us in, in our walk with the Lord? Let me give you just three, okay? The first thing I think we can learn from this is that when the gospel comes in power and when the gospel comes in, in the spirit, lives are quickly and radically changed. It's not the arguments of men. It's not the philosophies of this world. It's the gospel, pure and simple, that changes lives. When the gospel is presented in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now listen to me. You don't need to try to present the gospel in the power of your flesh. You don't need the sharpest argument in town. I believe that we ought to be well equipped and we ought to be able to discuss and, and to try to persuade. And I, I think that, that there's great... There's great advantage to, to studying and to being educated. But at the end of the day, my education is not going to change anybody's heart. The gospel needs to be presented in the power of the Holy Spirit, where he gives us the words, where he uses those words in a, in a powerful way. When the gospel comes in power by the Holy Spirit, lives are quickly and radically changed. You know why? Because God can do more in 30 minutes than you and I could do in 30 years. But when we operate in the flesh, that power is missing and the gospel goes flat. So it's got to be proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul demonstrated the, the verses that he would later pen where he says, In our weakness, God's power is made perfect. 
Paul had just been mistreated in Philippi. He probably felt defeated. And in that weakest moment, the power of God showed up. So the gospel's got to be pure and plain and understandable. It's, it's not filled with flattery or, or backed by pride or, 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 or watered down with compromise. There's no hidden agenda. There's nothing like that. There's no elephants in the rooms that we don't talk about. The gospel confronts our sin, and it helps us to see how much we need Jesus. So what we've got to do is learn how to unleash the gospel in all of its power. How to, to pray and to seek the Spirit of God and know when to speak and what to say and how to say it in a way that God can use that to convict hearts and to bring people to Jesus Christ. The gospel doesn't need to be made more palatable in order to please men. It needs to be made more powerful in order to bring about conviction. The second thing I would say that the gospel does is that for the gospel to take root quickly the way it did here in Thessalonica, we must not only share the gospel, but we must also share ourselves. In other words, I've got to have a deep love for the person that I'm sharing the gospel with. I've got that coworker that, that doesn't know Jesus. I need to have a love for that coworker. Because if I don't love that coworker, I really don't care where they spend their eternity. If I don't love that co if the only reason I'm sharing with the coworker is the gospel of Jesus Christ is because I feel guilty if I don't, that's not love. And, and I don't think that's going to experience the power of the Holy Spirit. I think there needs to be a deep love. I think that, that we need to share not just the gospel, but we need to share ourselves. We need to, to open up our hearts and open up our homes and to invite those people in where they can hear the gospel and they can see the gospel lived out. Paul said in, in, in 1 Thessalonians, you've seen my example and now you're being an example to other people. He says, this thing is multiplying because I was an example to you and you followed my example and now you're, following, you're setting an example for others to follow and, and that's how the gospel goes. But we do that when we give them not just the gospel, but we give them ourselves. What's that old saying? The world doesn't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You've you got to give them not just the gospel, but you've got to give them yourself. And that means that you and I have got to get beyond ourselves and our selfishness and our agendas to be able to give them the gospel. We've got to open up our hearts and invite them in. They're not just a number, another number or another notch on your belt. These are the people that Jesus died for. These are people worth sacrificing for. They're people that are not beyond the reach of the gospel. They can be transformed just like you were transformed. And to be honest, these are the people that we are left here to reach. I need to remind you of this. I've said it before, but let me remind you of this today. If, if all God was interested in was saving you and getting you to heaven, then the minute that your heart turned to Jesus and the minute that you were saved, why wouldn't God just take you on to heaven? If that was his only goal, just to save you and get you out of here, then he could save you and take you to heaven immediately. But he's left you here with a purpose. And that purpose is that you make him known to those who don't know him yet. And that requires that you and I have a deep love for lost people. Do you know what most lost people think that we think about them? If a lost person was to lay in bed tonight and think, let me think about what the, the, the local church thinks about me, would they be smiling as they fell asleep? Most of the people would think, you know what, that church is, they hate me, they hate what I do. They, they despise me. They don't like me. 
They don't want to have anything to do with me. My neighbors live next door to me for how many years and they go to church but they've never invited me? What would our world think that we think about them? As they look at our actions and they look at how we interact with them. Do we love lost people like Jesus loved lost people? Our love's got to be genuine, sincere. It's got to be sacrificial in what we do. And by the way, when it's not, the world picks up on that so quick. Remember I told you the story that when I was in high school, I took a class on evangelism. And they taught us the best place to lead somebody to Jesus is in the laundromat because they put their money in the machine, their clothes are in there, and they can't leave. And you've got a captive audience. Remember that? And so I grabbed my Bible, and I grabbed the gospel, and I went to the laundromat. And I waited for them to put their money in the machine. And then I walk up to them, and I'd start my spill. I'd give them the gospel, but I hadn't given them myself. I didn't care about that person. I just wanted to be able to go back to church that night and share in front of my friends that I'd led somebody else to Jesus. That was more about me than it was about them. That's not the gospel. And that's not what we're called to do. We're called to be in a relationship with lost people. To love them with the love of Christ. So that when we present the gospel, they're going, oh, so that's, that's just, that makes sense. Because you've demonstrated that for me. And you love me like that. When it's not real, they, they know it. And that takes me to my third and final point is this. That we must love others more than we love ourselves. I am, by nature, a very selfish person. I like to do what I like to do. And I like others to do what I like for them to do. That's my nature. It's where I go when I don't go led by the Spirit. And so I, in my selfishness, I want to share with people Jesus, but when it's convenient for me, when it feels right, when I have a good idea that they're not going to revolt and turn away and do that, you know, I... I get selfish. I, I, I want them to like me. I want them to feel good about me. I want them to look up to me. And I want, you know, so in my selfishness sometimes I never get to the gospel. Sometimes I never get to the gospel because in my selfishness I don't put myself out there where they feel love and they feel valued. So we've got to love others more than we love ourselves. And our selfishness has got to be put to death if the gospel's ever going to be effective with other people. Paul did this. How many times did Paul suffer for the gospel in order to have one more opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus? Remember the Philippian jailer? Paul was the Roman citizen. He could have pulled out the Roman card before he ever got beat and before he ever got put in jail and said, nah, nah. Roman citizen, you can't touch me. 
But Paul suffered the beating. Spent the night in jail. Refused to run away when the doors opened. Why? So he could share with that jailer and with anybody else that would listen the gospel of Jesus Christ. We talked very, very early in this series about the fact that, that, that these beatings that Paul took at the hands of the synagogue leaders, the only reason he would have taken those beatings was so he could keep going back to the next synagogue and the next synagogue and the next synagogue. He could have said, I'm done with the synagogue. I'm done with you Jews. I'm taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And the Gentile world would have received it, but his Jewish brothers and sisters would have died without Jesus. And Paul took beating after beating after beating from synagogues in order to be able to go back and share the gospel again. That's what you call putting self to death in order that we can share the gospel with other people. He worked night and day so he wouldn't be a burden, he said. He, he gave himself to the people, not just another sermon. He, he put flesh to what Jesus said when he says, greater love has no man than this, then he would lay down his life for a friend. Do you realize Paul did that every day? Not just physically dying, but, but putting self to death and getting back up, sharing the gospel again, knowing that it was going to get him run out of town. Listen, I, I, don't, I, I think sometimes we forget the, the humanity of these biblical figures. Paul's no different than you. He's no different than me. He wanted dear friends. He probably wanted a place where he could settle down and just be loved and, and relax and let those wounds heal. Do you think that he got up every morning saying, man, I hope I get run out of town today. I hope I get beaty. Paul's no different than us. He wanted to be accepted. He wanted to be loved. He wanted all of but he wanted something more. And that was he wanted people to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. And it's not that you and I say, you know, I don't care about anybody else. I don't care about what anybody else. We're still going to care about those things. That's just part of how we're wired, I guess. But we've got to love something more than we love all that stuff. And for Paul, it was loving those people more than he loved himself. Paul's love was selfless and not selfish. You realize that sometimes your love can be selfish? It's not real love. We call it love. I love you, so you'll love me. I'll scratch your back, and then you can scratch mine. I'll do, and then you can do. And, and, and we call it love, but in many times we're just, we're just kind of setting ourselves up. Love sacrifices, and that's what Paul did again and again and again. And he had the scars to prove it. Paul's mission was never about Paul. It was not about making a name for himself or even becoming famous. It was just about being faithful to what Jesus had called him to do. And when you love somebody more than you love yourself, there's no sacrifice that's too great. There's no persecution that's, that, that's going to be too severe. There's no other passion that's so strong as making that love known in a tangible way. So let me ask you this as we close today. What kind of love do you have for the lost? What kind of love do you have? For the people in your house that are lost? For the people in your neighborhood that are lost? For the people you work with that are lost? What kind of love do you have for the lost? And what has that love 
cost you lately? It may cost you yourself. It, it may cost you that you have to just say, you know what, I keep giving, I'm getting nothing back, but you know what, I'm just going to keep giving. And I'm going to lay down myself in order to make the gospel known. So here's the gospel truth as we wind this up. You and I cannot manufacture that kind of love on our own. I'm going to try harder to love that spouse. I'm going to try harder to love that neighbor that keeps blaring that loud music at night. I'm going to try harder. And the truth is we can't manufacture this kind of love on our own. Our flesh just won't allow it. Our mind will give us 500 reasons why we can stop loving but only God can light that kind of fire. Only God can enable us to die to ourselves and begin to live for Him. What we need is not more willpower. We need more of His power. We need for Him to help us to, to do what Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. That's the kind of life that we live and we need. But we can't do that in our own strength. We can't do that in our own power. And the good news is this, that we don't have to. This morning, you can say, God, would you give me a greater love for that person? Greater love for my spouse, a greater love for my children, a greater love for my neighbor, my co-workers. God, would you put in me a, a, a greater love than I've ever had for those people to know the gospel? Because you know what? When, when, when you, you allow God to put that love in you, then you want them to hear the gospel. And you want them to respond to that gospel. But you've got to admit, you can't do it on your own. You need God's help. And call out to Him and ask Him for the help that you're going to need to be able to do that. God will grant you His Spirit to help you. And, and where there's a Spirit, there's new life, there's new desire, there's spiritual growth, there's a powerful church. But apart from Him, we can't do any of this on our own. So maybe today you just need to say to the Lord, Lord, would you give me greater desire to sacrifice whatever I need to sacrifice, my time, my finances, whatever I need to sacrifice, Lord, to make you known to the world. Let's call out today and let's ask God for the help that we need to be the men and the women that he's created us to be. So that as we reach the end of our lives, we don't look back and say, wow, I've, I've lived the life, but I've never experienced the life that God has for me. Ask the Holy Spirit to empty you of yourself and to fill you with himself. And start today to learn how to walk in the Spirit the way Paul did. And watch what God can do in such a short time as we devote ourselves to him. Let's pray.